0: Please hear the word of God from Matthew chapter 9, verses 1 to 13. And getting into a boat, he crossed over and came to his own city. And behold, some people brought to him a paralytic lying on a bed. And when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, Take heart, my son, your sins are forgiven. And behold, some of the scribes said to themselves, This man is blaspheming, but Jesus And they glorified God, who had given such authority to men. As Jesus passed on from there, he saw a man called Matthew sitting at the tax booth. And he said to him, follow me. And he rose and followed him. And as Jesus reclined at the table in the house, behold, many tax collectors and sinners came and were reclining with Jesus and his disciples. And when the Pharisees saw this, they said to his disciples, Why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? But when he heard it, he said, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. Go and learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice, for I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. Friends, what you've just heard is a reading of God's word. Amen. I'm going to invite you to be seated again. And as we uh, get ready to continue on and focus on this text, let me just pray and ask again for God's assistance to open this text to us through the powerful working of the Holy Spirit. Father in heaven, we've been delighted to hear your word a number of times. We've sung your word. We've sung songs that are based on your word. We've prayed uh, informed by your word. And Lord, for the next few minutes, we want to fix our attention on what you're saying to us through Matthew 9, 1 to 13. And, Lord, we need your help in doing that because we recognize that our minds are often dull. Our hearts are often hardened. Lord, sometimes we're more interested in other things, to be honest. And we pray, Father, that you would help us to hone in on your word and, most of all, you through your word. Lord, you've designed this text to show us the glory of your Son and who we are in him and what you call us to be in him and his disciples. And so we pray, Father, that your Holy Spirit would do that in this time that your Holy Spirit would reveal the glory of Christ, who he is as Savior and Lord and the friend of sinners, and who he is in us as his blood-bought church. Help me as I proclaim your word. Help all of us to sit under your word. Help us to feast on your gospel today and to live in light of your gospel. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. I want to do a little bit of word association with you. I want to share a few famous people institutions, organizations, and I want you to think of their reputation. What is the first connotation that comes to your mind when you hear this individual? Let's start with Mother Teresa. What comes in your mind as you hear Mother Teresa? You probably think of a nun, someone who served the poor. You may think of India, uh, where I've served. She's known for that. What about the KKK? Did you have an image of a person hooded in white? Maybe you thought of hatred, white supremacy. What about Starbucks? Now, I may have distracted you already. You may be thinking about your next cup of joe at Starbucks, but you probably thought of coffee everywhere sometimes, maybe overpriced coffee, depending on your perspective. What about Geico? Geico. The jingle probably came in your brain. 15 minutes could save you 15% or more on car insurance. Or maybe you thought of a green lizard or cavemen. They've had some creative commercials. Here's one. Zion Presbyterian Church and Prosper. Zion Presbyterian Church and Prosper. What comes to your mind when you think of Zion Presbyterian Church and Prosper? More importantly, perhaps, what do you want to come to mind of those in Prosper when they hear of Zion Presbyterian Church, if they're not members here. You're a new church, you've been meeting for just a little bit less than a year, I believe. Five years down the road, when people in your community, when your neighbors, when they hear Zion Presbyterian Church, what is the first connotation or one of the first connotations that you want to come to their mind? What should your reputation be as a church? Now, there's more than one answer to that. There's multiple biblical answers to that, but one that must certainly be present if we are united by faith to the one who is the friend of sinners. If he lives in us individually and as a church and calls us to follow him, then this church must be known as the friend of sinners. And so from Matthew 9, 1 to 13 today, I want to challenge you in the grace of the gospel to develop a reputation as friends of sinners, both as a church body and as members of this church. And I believe this text has a lot of help for us to feast us and feed us and help us to grow towards that. And we're going to draw out two things from this text, just following the text of Scripture. In verses 1 to 8, we're going to see that we must, or you must, believe the gospel for yourself. And I mean really believe it, not just cognitively believe it, but believe it in such a way that your affection and your love and your delight is drawn out toward your your Savior, where the gospel is something that you praise and delight in and rejoice in, and it actually lives and makes a difference in your day-to-day life. We're going to see that we must believe the gospel for yourself. And then secondly and finally, in verses 9 to 13, as those who really believe the gospel, we're going to see that we must befriend those who do not yet know the gospel. We must actually make an effort to go out and find sinners and build relationships and love them and be the friend of sinners. But let's hone in and think about our first point, to believe the gospel for yourself. Let's think about the context of where this passage fits in Matthew's argument because Matthew has a very clear argument. He's originally writing to Jewish readers, the majority, And the Jews had a hope that had built over the Old Testament period. God had made a promise to King David that he would raise up one of his sons to have an everlasting kingdom, probably a thousand years or so before Jesus came. And as God revealed more scripture through his prophets, that hope became more tangible. And there was a prophetic looking for the king who would come, the son of David who would come and bring in God's kingdom and deliver God's people from all their oppressors. And then Matthew is saying that long-awaited king has come in the person of Jesus. Jesus is the king. Jesus is the Messiah. And so he's wanting us to see the authority of Jesus as king. And so at the end of the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5 to 7, one of the most famous places of Jesus' sermon or teaching, notice the response of the crowds in Matthew 7, 28 and 29. Matthew 7, 28 says that when Jesus finished these sayings, the crowds were astonished at his teaching why verse 29 for he was teaching them as one who had authority and not as their scribes jesus is telling us the true intent of god's word the true intent of the law how the law pointed towards him what the word of god was continually teaching them he had authority over over god's word over doctrine and then you get to matthew chapter 8 and and matthew just continues to go to town on Jesus' authority, we see at the beginning of Matthew 8, you can just look at if your Bible has kind of the little summaries, not biblical summaries, but what the editors put in. Jesus cleanses a leper, the faith of a centurion. We see that Jesus has authority over sickness. Someone is sick, Jesus says the word, and they're healed. He has unparalleled authority. He heals many. We see in verse 23 of Matthew 8, the famous calming of the storm. The disciples are in a storm, and, and Jesus with a word rebukes the wind, and the wind and the waves. What do they do? They obey him immediately. And look at Matthew 8:27, the response of the disciples. And the men marveled, saying, What sort of man is this that even wind and sea obey him? Jesus has authority over the natural elements that even in modern days we are so helpless against, as our snowstorm, our ice storm in February reminded us. At the end of Matthew 8, we see the Gadarene demoniac. No one can chain him, no one can help him, but Jesus comes and heals him. He has authority even over the demonic realm. It's been a pretty impressive stretch in Matthew 7 and 8. Jesus' authority unparalleled to any other human being who's ever been on the planet that anyone's ever seen. But when we get to Matthew 9, my friends, we see an authority that's even more important. God takes it up a notch as he reveals to us the authority because here we see Jesus' authority to deal with our greatest problem, which is our sin problem. Here we discover that Jesus has the authority to forgive our sins. And so we pick up in Matthew 9.1. Jesus left the the area of the Gadarenes. He's returned back to his hometown. Look at verse 1, Matthew 9.1. And getting into a boat, he crossed over and came to his own city. And what happens as he returns? He begins to gather a crowd and to teach. And look at verse 2. And behold, some people brought to him a paralytic lying on a bed. Now, Matthew really shortens this. If you look in Luke 5, there's a parallel account. And it's that impressive account where there's so many people that have gathered around this house that Jesus is teaching in that the men can't get there. He has four friends carrying him on this stretcher, a homemade stretcher. He can't walk. And they can't get him into the crowds. They can't make their way through the crowds. And so, do you remember the story? They climb up on the roof, and they open the roof, and they let him down. I mean, can you imagine? You're in worship, and the roof opens up here, and someone is being lowered down. It was a remarkable scene. Now, not as remarkable uh, now or then as it would be now because they did open roofs. So it wasn't like they were tearing something up. The roofs were openable. But nonetheless, it caught everyone's attention. Now, I don't know why Matthew exactly doesn't include that tantalizing part of it, but I think he wants to focus not so much on the faith of the friends or this paralytic, but on the authority of Jesus and what he can do for sinners. Notice that in Matthew 9, 2, it says that Jesus saw their faith. I think he saw their faith because they were coming through the roof. (laughs) He knew that these people were serious. They thought Jesus could really help, and they go to great lengths in order for them uh, for their friend to be healed by jesus and then at the end of verse 2 jesus says words that surprised and shocked everyone there including the paralytic look at the end of verse 2. remember he's here for a physical healing he's a paralytic his obvious need is that he cannot walk and jesus seemingly to take a different direction says take heart my son not rise up and be healed at least not yet he says your sins are forgiven. People began to scratch their head. Jesus, now he's going to deal with his physical needs, but what Jesus is doing is he's addressing a greater, more primary need. He's addressing the spiritual need of this man, of this sinner. It surprised the paralytic, it surprised everyone who was there, it surprised and angered, as we're going to see in a moment, the religious leaders, but it should not surprise the reader of Matthew. If you turn back to Matthew one twenty one, we see a a programmatic statement about Jesus' ministry as his birth is announced. Look at Matthew one twenty one, almost a theme verse of Matthew. The angel says, She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. Why? For he will save his people from their sins. Now, Jesus came in to bring in the kingdom of God. He came in to deal with all that sin has wrecked, our wrecked bodies, the demonic oppression, our world that's under God's curse. But all that is nothing to us unless he can forgive our sins and we can enjoy this kingdom in God's presence. And so our greatest problem is our sin problem. I find it interesting that sometimes God uses trials to help us begin to turn towards Jesus, maybe because we think we need help with our trials. And then as we come and explore who Jesus is, hopefully from Scripture and maybe in a good church, we learn that those actually aren't our greatest problems. That Jesus is meant primarily and first to save us from our sins. I was struck by this by the men I served in India, many of the pastors. And many times when I would meet with pastors from especially a Hindu background, and I would hear their testimonies, they would have a similar testimony of being in some sort of dire straits, physically or otherwise. And that's what moved them to begin to explore Jesus. And as they explored Jesus and learned more about him from his word, they realized they had a greater problem, and that was of their sin. And they went beyond just looking to him for physical help, although he does provide that. And they saw that their need was for his forgiveness. Now, why are these words so remarkable? Why would they have been stunning? Look at verse 3 and the reaction of the scribes, the religious experts of the day. Matthew 9, 3, Behold, some of the scribes said to themselves, This man is blaspheming. This man is blaspheming. Why, Why are they saying? What are they saying about Jesus? Well, this is where the parallel in Luke really helps us. Turn over to Luke 5, verse 21. And Luke adds in the words that came next, and Matthew keeps them out for whatever reason. All counts are selective, but... Notice in Luke 5, 21, in this parallel account, the scribes and Pharisees began to question him, saying, who is this that speaks blasphemies? Blasphemes, or blasphemies? Same uh, question, but notice what they follow up with that explains their, their charge of blasphemy. Who can forgive sins but God alone? Who can forgive sins but God alone? I mean, here's one of those cases where they are theologically correct. They don't have it wrong. They are right that only God can forgive the sins of others who are not directly against them. But they have their identification wrong, do they not? They don't recognize that standing before them is the Messiah, and that he's not merely a human Messiah, but that he is the Son of God incarnate. This is God enfleshed before them. And the one who is uttering this is the God-man Messiah, Jesus Christ. And so they're thinking, because they don't understand who he is, how in the world can he forgive the sins of this person he's never met before? It seems obvious that prior to this, this man is a stranger to Jesus. How can he forgive his sins? This guy's never sinned against him. It's a divine prerogative to do that. Let me give you an illustration, and I'll use your pastor and his wife, Mark and Andrea, Now, this would never happen, but let's say you get here early to church, and and Mark and Andrea are here, and they're setting up, and you hear an argument. And you hear Mark berating Andrea and really saying unkind things to her. Again, this is hypothetical. Uh, He's saying unkind things to her. You know, you don't have the sense that God gave a fence post. That's that's an East Texas uh, slam. Uh, I don't know what you would say where you grew up, but, you know, he's really berating her, and it seems to be unfair. And you walk in and say, hey, 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 Mark. You shouldn't be talking like that to your wife, but you know what? I forgive you. What would Andrea think at this point? (laughs) She'd probably get mad at you. You don't have the right to forgive him. He didn't sin against you. He sinned against me. Only I can forgive him. I'm the one that's been sinned against. Who are you to step in here? Only God can forgive the sins of those who are not against us personally by another person. But that's the very claim that Jesus is making here, that he has the authority to do that, and he's going to demonstrate it by this healing Because the people aren't catching on. Look at verse 4. Jesus, knowing their thoughts in verse 4, said, Why do you think evil in your hearts? I want to stop there for just a second before I get on to how Jesus proves his authority to forgive sin. I want you to notice what Jesus calls unbelief. He targets it as evil, it's wicked. It's wicked because it's not accepting the testimony that God has made about his son, that God has spoken in his word about his son. God has set forth his son and said he is the one in whom all authority has been given. He is the only savior of sinners. He is the only one who can forgive sins. And to look at Jesus and say he does not have that authority is evil. It's wicked. It's unbelief. And So Jesus poses a question to try to demonstrate and help them along with their evil unbelief. So that it might turn to belief and he asked them a question which is a difficult question in verse 5 he says for which is easier to say your sins are forgiven or to say rise and walk so which is the easier question what does Jesus mean here I think he's saying it's easier to say your sins are forgiven yes theologically you can say that only God can forgive sins You really can't prove it at the deepest level. I mean, because he's making claims for himself that he can It's hard to, to just clearly disprove that he can't forgive sins. But it's very easy to disprove the ability to heal someone if you can't do it. If you had a paralyzed person that you knew to be a member of your congregation, not someone that I brought in, and this person standing in the front row, and I was to say to this individual, I heal you in the name of Jesus, rise and walk. You have been healed, brother or sister. If they can't get up and walk, you know that I have, do not have the authority to do that. If they get up and walk, you know that I do. And so Jesus is saying, yes, it's easier for me to say your sins are forgiven because you can't really disprove it as clearly. But to show you that I can, I'm going to do something else. You see, we know that the harder thing is that not actually the physical healing especially living in modern medicine. There's many maladies back then that Jesus healed that now, in God's common grace, modern medicine can heal. But only Jesus can forgive sins. We know that the harder thing, if you will, is not the physical healing. It's the spiritual healing. It is the forgiveness that Jesus is able to grant because of who he is and what he'll do in his life, death, and resurrection. And so look at verse 6. He says, but that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. Friends, today God wants you to know that he has the authority to forgive sins. And he wanted them to know. And so he says, I'm going to show you. I'm going to prove it to you. And so he says to the paralytic, rise, pick up your bed, and go home. And what happens? Nothing. Does the guy just lie there? No, he gets up. Remember, this is a guy who is so helpless that his friends had to bring him in on a mat. And now he rises, and in his own power, through this healing by Jesus, he picks up his mat and goes home. I mean, in one sense, the the text of Scripture is very anticlimactic, I think. Verse 7, and he rose and went home. I mean, wouldn't you like to hear more from this brother? Wouldn't you like to hear what he said, what his experience was? But again, Matthew is wanting us not to focus so much on that, but on who Jesus is. And he rose, and he goes home. Now, notice the response of the crowd. They are rightly stunned in verse 8. When the crowd saw it, they were afraid, and they glorified God, who had given such authority to men. Now, the real question is, is what what are they stunned about? Are they stunned about the obvious authority to heal this man who's a paralytic? Or did the theological penny drop (laughs) Are they stunned because of what this physical healing shows about the words that he's uttered about his authority to forgive sins? Did they say, aha, if he can heal this man physically, then he can heal this man spiritually? Because the harder thing to say, the harder thing to prove, in one sense, is rising this man up. I honestly don't know. I think they're probably more stunned about the physical healing at this point. But friends, I know what we should be more stunned about. Yes, we should look forward to that day, and we are bodily raised from the dead. When Jesus comes and ushers in his new kingdom, he will raise us up bodily. He will heal us regardless of your malady one day, and that is part of the gospel that we delight in. But what we should be most stunned about is that this Jesus comes to us in his grace, and he has the authority. He wants you to know that he has the authority to forgive even your sins and even my sins. You see, we need to recognize both for ourselves and others that Jesus has the authority to forgive our sins. We must believe the gospel, first for ourselves and then for other people. And what you need to hear today, if perhaps you're visiting here or if you're a covenant kid, if you've grown up in a Christian home and you've thought maybe, you know what I really need Jesus for? I need Jesus, if you're a student, to help me get a good grade on my test. Or if you're in university, I really need Jesus to help me to socialize well and to get a good job. Maybe you're an adult here and you think, I really need Jesus mostly to help me with my health. I struggle with chronic pain. I have cancer. I really need Jesus to help me with my finances. The pandemic's been hard on me. I really need Jesus to heal my marriage or my broken relationship with my children. I need Jesus to deal with these things. And in one sense, Jesus ultimately will deal with these things. But sometimes people come to Jesus and they look for that in toto. To follow Jesus is for him to make my life better here and now. In India, there's a God that is worshipped where we live. There's many gods, but the most famous and most popular is a God called Ganesha. He's the elephant-headed God. And every year, there's a large festival of Ganesha that goes on for many days. And people worship Ganesha because they believe that he gives them good luck. If they worship him rightly, which involves buying a dissolvable idol, marching it very loudly, preferably in the middle of the night, to a body of water and dissolving this idol, that Ganesha will bless them and prosper them and that they'll, they'll prosper financially. Many people sadly who bear the name Christian or who come to explore Christianity, they treat Jesus like he's like Ganesha. Maybe if I come to church, maybe if I follow with this guy, this guru Jesus has said, maybe if I become a good person like Jesus says, then, then God will take care of all my problems. And friends, what you need to hear today from the gospel is that that is not your greatest problem your health issues are not your greatest problem. Your financial conundrum is not your greatest problem. Your relational struggles in your family, with your neighbors, it's not your greatest problem. The political situation in America is not your greatest problem. Corona is not your greatest problem. Friends, your greatest problem, according to the word of God, is that we are sinners that we have offended Almighty God, that we have failed to love Him with all of our being, that we don't wake up each day delighted to live for God and enjoy Him, and we can't stop thinking about Him, and we feast on His Word because we want to follow Him, and in His power, we seek His power to love our neighbors, ourselves. We don't do that consistently. And God's Word says that He is holy, 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 as we sing about, and that puts us in a situation where we deserve His just wrath. That is the great problem that is against fallen humanity. It is your greatest problem. And if you have yet to come to Jesus and put your faith in Him as Savior, that is the greatest problem facing you today. And friends, if that is you... Whether you're a covenant kid or an 80-year-old adult, whoever you are, if that is you, if you have not put your trust in Jesus yet, I have good news from God's word today. God's word, Jesus wants you to know that he has the authority to forgive your sins. Can I get an amen? He has the authority to forgive your sins. You may be thinking, Richie, you don't know what I've done. I don't think Jesus can forgive me. I'm a woman. I've had an abortion. I feel guilt about that. I realize what I've done is terrible wrong. God can't forgive me for that. I'm a man, and I've committed terrible abuse against others. I've sinned sexually against others. Or maybe you just feel so torn up about your own sexual sin or just the, the wicked things that go on in your heart. You see the bitterness that so often fills you. You say, you, you don't know the life of debauchery. I've either lived externally or just internally. You don't know the things I've thought about God the anger I've had towards God, the questioning I've had against God, I don't think he can forgive me. And friends, what I want you to hear today is that it doesn't matter who you are, it doesn't matter what you've done, on the authority of God's word, Jesus is taking pains today in the text of Scripture to know that he can forgive even you, even me, the chief of sinners. And so friends, I urge you to come to Jesus today if that's you. If you've yet before this day to put your faith in him, come to him, to trust in him. Cast yourself on his mercy. And friends, if you're thinking, you know, if he, would just, if he would just do something like he did for that paralytic, if he would just make this thing better in my life, if he'd just improve my financial situation, if he'd just heal me of this disease or pain, then maybe I could believe he had the authority to forgive my sins. But friends, what you need to know is that Jesus once for all has proved his authority to forgive your sins. And he doesn't have to do it by healing you of your situation now. He did it when, after dying on that cross in the place of sinners, he raised powerfully from the dead to never die again. The fact that he lives today at the right hand of God the Father and will return. Through his own healing of himself, through his death and resurrection, he has proven once for all that he has the authority to forgive your sins. And so, friends, I invite you to come to him. And more importantly, Jesus invites you to come to him through his word now, maybe you're a Christian, and, and you're, you know that you trust Jesus as Savior. You believe that, and yet you've really fallen into habitual sin. You continue to go back to that same sin, whether it's gossip or lust or envy or discontent or pornography or whatever it may be. And you just feel so guilty because you keep falling into it. And you feel like, I just, I just don't have any delight in the gospel. I don't think Jesus can forgive me again. And Jesus says, I will forgive you again. I will restore your joy. I can give you new strength to fight that sin. And so if that's you today, come to Jesus again. Know that he has the authority to forgive even your sins again and to delight in doing and to give you new help in the gospel. So friends, we have to believe that, but we also have to believe that for other people as well. We have to know that Jesus has the authority to forgive anyone's sins. Friends, God has the authority to forgive the sins of your unbelieving spouse if you have one. God has the authority and ability to forgive your erring teenager who may be walking away from the faith that you taught them. God has the ability in Christ to forgive your homosexual neighbor or your transgender co-worker or your Muslim neighbor there's no one that should be outside of our hope in the gospel. Our prayers for conversion are bearing witness to them. And the reality is, is that many of us, we have a list of people, an unconscious list, where this person would never come to Jesus. They are so far out of bounds. And when we have that list, we fail to pray for these people, We fail to build relationships with these people. We fail to offer them the gospel in Christ. And and God is coming to us, and he's saying, you have this list, if you will, of all these people that you either think are unworthy of me or have never come to me, and you need to take that list, and you need to tear it up because I have the authority to forgive anyone's sins. My specialty, specialty is forgiving sinners. It's what I came for, and there's no one who's outside the pale of that. Friends, you must believe the gospel for yourself. You must celebrate the gospel. What must characterize the worship and life of Zion Presbyterian Church is that this is a church that truly believes the gospel, that every sermon that's preached in this pulpit exalts Jesus Christ, that every Bible study Sunday school exalts and delights in Jesus Christ, that your conversations as members, your prayers for one another is a delighting and a treasuring of who Christ is for you in the gospel, that you can't get over who Jesus is, that you don't live our reputation as Presbyterians, as the frozen chosen, but that you let the truth about God stir your affections and your love and delight in your Redeemer because he is glorious and he is the friend of sinners and you know him and you've experienced his grace. So friends, I urge you on the authority of God's word to believe the gospel for yourself. And if you believe that Jesus alone can forgive sins, then we must share that truth with others. We must secondly and finally befriend those who need the gospel. Would you look at verse 9 in Matthew 9? What does Jesus do after this, after talking about his authority? says, he passes on from there, and he saw a man called Matthew sitting at the tax booth, and he said to him, follow me. Again, these are words that don't shock us as they should. Tax collectors, if you talk about reputation in that day, tax collectors were viewed as the worst of the worst. That's why they're often lumped together in the phrase tax collectors and sinners. Tax collectors were Jews who, if you will, in the eyes of many Jews, had basically turned on their own people. They had come to the Roman oppressors and said, Yes, I'll, I'll work for you. And they would often ask more than what was required by the Roman authorities, and they made themselves rich, praying on their fellow Jews. They were despised by most Jews. And Jesus is going to go seek out a tax collector to be his disciple? One of his main disciples? Why would Jesus do that? I don't know what the exact equivalent of a tax collector is today. Maybe used car salesman. I don't think there's ever a positive connotation to to used car salesman. Maybe politician. Uh, We tend to think of most politicians as dirty in some way, compromised. We make jokes about politicians. How do you know when a politician is lying? Their mouth is moving. There are certain groups that have this reputation. That was definitely the tax collectors of those days. And yet Jesus chooses this one. And he invites him to follow him. And notice what's remarkable. And again, it's so understated. I would love to see the wrestling perhaps that went on in Matthew's life. But the text of Scripture just summarizes it. Jesus says, follow me. And at the end of verse 9, it says he rose and followed him. Again, maybe Matthew is actually the one who's writing this, the author of our gospel, inspired by Scripture. He wanted us to focus on who Jesus is and his call, not on himself. And so he follows Jesus. And what happens with this this notorious sinner, because that's what he would have been, what happens with this notorious sinner when he experiences Jesus' authority to heal him, to forgive his sins, which he was no doubt guilty of? Look at verse 10. And as Jesus reclined at table in the house, behold, Many tax collectors and sinners came and were reclining with Jesus and his disciples. Now, I think Matthew's being humble here again. Why are all of a sudden these tax collectors and sinners coming and reclining with Jesus? Turn over to Luke with me, if you would. Again, Luke chapter 5, our parallel account. I think in his humility and his gospel, Matthew does not say this. But look in in Luke chapter 5, verse 29. And Levi, Levi's the tax collector, it's another name for Matthew. Levi or Matthew made a great feast in his house. And there was a large company of tax collectors and others reclining at table with him. What is this one who has freshly tasted for the first time the authority of Jesus to forgive his sins? What does he do? He invites all of his unbelieving friends to Jesus. He's like, You gotta meet with this guy. This is the Messiah. He has an authority like I've never seen. You have to come and hear his words, hear his message, see who he is. And so he throws a party, and Jesus shows up. This is the glory and beauty of the zeal of new Christians. Oftentimes when we're new Christians, we don't overthink our evangelism and we we so appreciate that fresh taste of being forgiven, and we just naturally begin to invite people who don't know Christ and tell them about Christ, our unbelieving friends. And yet sadly, over time, sometimes as Christians, we slowly lose those relationships. Maybe some of that's good at times. Some of it's we lived a very immoral lifestyle and we feel like we need some separation. We're finding the joy of Christian fellowship, but Sometimes way too much. We get too separated from those non-believing relationships. But thankfully, Matthew at least starts well. He begins to invite people in, his fellow sinners. And notice the reaction of Jesus meeting with these sinful people, these tax collectors. Verse 11, when the Pharisees saw this, they said to his disciples, Why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? You have to hear the scorn in their voice as they're saying this. It's disgust. Why in the world would he do that? It would have been unthinkable for most a regular Jewish person to do this. It was especially unthinkable for a Jewish rabbi. And yet, this wasn't a one-time thing for Jesus. This is what he did all the time, hanging out and spending time with non-Christians, if you will, with tax collectors and sinners. Move forward just a couple chapters to Matthew eleven nineteen. Matthew eleven nineteen 19, he says this. The son, and he's talking about himself. The Son of Man came eating and drinking, and they say, this is what his opponents were saying about him. Look at him, a glutton and a drunkard. In other words, he liked to party, not in a bad way. He went to parties. A friend of tax collectors and sinners. They meant that in the most derogatory way possible. And Jesus takes it as a badge of honor because he comes as the savior of those type of people, those who recognize their sin and need for him. And it becomes something that we read earlier, even in our service, that this is what Jesus was known for, the friend of tax collectors and sinners. You see, the Jews thought that they would catch the unholiness of sinners and they had to to get away from them and certainly never have a meal with them. And Jesus was just the opposite. He ran to sinners to pass on his holiness to them, to share who he was and why he'd come as the savior of sinners and so in Matthew nine twelve to 13, he explains his mission in those terms. He says in verse 12, but when he heard it, when he heard their derision, basically, he asked them a question. He says, those who are well have no... I'm sorry. When he heard it, he said, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. Here, he's talking about the purpose of his ministry. And in the same breath, he's rebuking the religious leaders the ones who had the revelation of the God of Israel and his mercy, his kindness, his extension for not just Jews but anyone who would come to him. And he uses an illustration that makes perfect sense then and it makes perfect sense now that people who come to heal come for sick people. They don't run away from sick people. Our middle daughter, Hannah, with the cowboy hat on right now, she had a very hard year of her life in India. The first year of her life, she had all kinds of strange sicknesses. She was sick all the time. She had MRSA, if you know about that, a terrible, deadly skin infection. One day she woke up and she had splotches all over her body. She was sick continually. Probably eight or nine times we had to call the doctor during that first year of her life in India. and We thankfully had a very responsive doctor, Dr. Bopaya. And just about any time we'd call Dr. Bopaya, she'd say, bring her in. But can you imagine us calling Dr. Bopaya and saying, Dr. Bopaya, she has 103 fever, and she's got all these splotches on her body. Can we bring her in to see you? And her saying, no, please don't bring her in. I don't want to catch what she has. You'd say, well, that's stupid. I'm going to get a new doctor. That's the purpose of doctors. And Jesus comes in and said, I've come as a physician for those who are spiritually sick. And my calling as a physician is to go to them in their spiritual sickness and to spend time with them and invite them to repentance and faith in me. He makes clear the analogy at the end of verse 13. He says, I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. Now, don't mistake that. Jesus is not saying there's a group of people in Israel and here's the righteous people and here's the sinners, Everybody is a sinner. He recognizes that. What he's saying is, I've come for those who recognize their sinners. Not those who are self-righteous. Not those who think they can justify themselves before God through their own obedience. And that's why the tax collectors and sinners were so open to his message. Many of them knew themselves to be out of rights with God. And yet Jesus comes to them. And he rebukes the Pharisees. And he rebukes us, perhaps, today in verse 13. He says, go and learn what this means. Now, you have to appreciate what he's doing here. Back in that day, these scribes and Pharisees who were so self-righteous, when they felt like someone didn't understand the teaching of God's word, the Old Testament, they would often sarcastically look down on people and say, go and learn what the scroll of Isaiah says. It was a condescending remark that they would use on others. And Jesus turns that condescending remark that they would use on others and say, look, you really don't know the scriptures. Go and learn what this means. Become a disciple for the first time. And what does he quote? He quotes from Hosea chapter 6, verse 6, where God, through his prophet, to his people who are very religious and yet had no compassion and acted sinfully in other ways, he says, I desire mercy and not sacrifice. I desire mercy and not sacrifice. What Jesus was saying is that for those who are related to God, especially those who are leaders, but everyone who's rightly related to God, who knows him as Redeemer, Our calling is not to flee from sinners but to go to them because we have the one thing that they need the most. We have the spiritual healing. We can introduce them to the mercy of God that is centered in Jesus Christ and found only in him. But, friends, we have to go and learn. Maybe God today is speaking to you through his word, and you need to go and learn what it means to pursue sinners, to be like your Savior if you claim him and to become the friend of sinners. Now, maybe some of you are thinking, oh, Richie, I have lots of Christian friends or non-Christian friends. But my question is, do you have Christian friends, non-Christian friends, like Jesus had non-Christian friends? He didn't just spend time with them. He wasn't just about the partying and, you know, having a good meal and having a glass of wine. He always had a deeper purpose in that relationship, which was to introduce them to who he was, to call them to repentance from their sin and faith in Christ to be his disciple. And so maybe you have Christian friends, but are you praying for them? Are you seeking the right opportunities to bear witness to them? Are you bringing them into relationship with other Christians, maybe inviting them to church? Are you seeking to bring them to your Savior? Maybe some of you who have non-Christian friends need to go and learn in that way. But perhaps maybe more of you need to be challenged to have non-Christian friends at all, to really make a space in your life for non-Christians. And do you have that? If you claim to be a Christian, do you have people that come to mind that you know who are non-Christian and you are very intentional in praying for them, spending time with them, seeking to introduce them to other Christians, to invite them to Christian things, to worship? Because it's so easy for us, isn't it, as Christians, to get caught up in the busyness of life, to go from Christian activity to Christian activity. We go to worship, small group, men's Bible study, accountability, and these things are wonderful things that we need to be involved in. We need to be in meaningful relationships with other Christians. Worship is primary, of course. But it's very easy, if we're not intentional, to very subtly, without thinking about it, to only be in a serious way, not just in passing acquaintance, interacting with non-Christians and leaving them out of our lives. But, friends, do you have that? Do you have two or three non-Christians that you spend regular time with, that you're really praying on their behalf to God that you're seeking to share the gospel with. Here's what I find to be a good test to see if I have good relationships. Let's say we we all live in Texas, Prosper area. Let's say that for whatever reason, job, family, study, you you move halfway across the United States or maybe across the world, um, you know, international post with your company, and you leave Prosper. Can you name for sure two or three non-Christians in your life that you know would miss you? They would say, that, that person's such a friend of me, I'm really going to miss them. We used to go have coffee together, or, or we went hunting together, or uh, we enjoyed just doing things together. They really were involved in my life. They really cared for me. Can you name two or three people like that? Friends, if you can't, perhaps God is calling you to go and learn today, to repent, to be reminded that you serve the one who's the friend of sinners. He's your friend. He lives in you through the power of the Holy Spirit, and he's impelling you to go, not just be welcoming to non-Christians, but to really pursue non-Christians. Friends, at Zion Presbyterian, my prayer for you as a church is that you'll not only be welcoming to the non-Christians that God brings to worship here on Sundays and to your community group, but that you'll be very intentional with your neighbors, your fellow students, your co-workers, people in your community, that you will go out to them. And I want to give you a specific challenge. I want you to think of Two or three people in your life, whether it's someone at your workplace, your neighborhood, your school, your community, maybe some, maybe you take martial arts or a hobby, and there's non-Christians that you already have somewhat of a relationship with, and I want to I encourage you to just write down or think about those two or three names and make it your goal over the rest of this year to be very intentional with those two or three non-Christians. Begin to pray for them regularly, that God would open their eyes to the truth Seek to spend time with them. Maybe it's just inviting them over monthly for dinner or going out to coffee every few weeks or seeing a movie together. One of my missionary teammates in India said evangelism became revolutionary for him or as a great revolutionary help when he realized that he could take the hobbies that he was interested in already and just invite non-Christians along with him. So he loved to rock climb and he used to go do it by himself or with just his wife. And before he became a missionary in India, he would just take people rock climbing that were non-Christians. And when he came to India, he took people rock climbing and people thought that was neat to do. Maybe you have a hobby that you enjoy and your non-Christian friend enjoys that and y'all can do that together. Or it's simply having a meal regularly. But friends over this remainder of this year, would you really target for intentional friendship with those two or three people? Invite to seek them to church, activities, introduce them to your Christian friends. Take a long haul. Don't just get to that point and you you finally blurt the gospel and they say no and you go on, but be a real friend of this person that knows you love them not because you simply want to win them to Christ, but because you love them. And because you do love them, you want that more than anything else. I want to close by telling you about a lady you may have heard about. Her name is Rosaria Butterfield. When she was 28 years old, she came out of the closet, if you will. She openly uh, professed to be a homosexual. Uh, to be a lesbian. Uh, about that time, she got her PhD in literary and cultural studies and took up a post at Syracuse University teaching women's studies. And she began to be a very vocal proponent of both women's rights and homosexual rights, and to write, and she would publicly attack Christianity. She said that Christians had both her pity and her wrath. She thought Jesus follower, Jesus and his followers, and these are her words, stupid, pointless, and menacing. She shares of her view of Christians at that time in her late 20s, early 30s. And I'm quoting her from her autobiography. She says, I was really perplexed by Christians. Christians confused me. I did not understand why Christians would ha- wouldn't leave consenting adults alone. She was talking about homosexual practice. That seemed like a basis of civil democracy. And Christians always seemed like bad readers to me. I was confused by the ways Christians would use the Bible sort of like a punctuation mark to end a conversation rather than to deepen it. That's just not the way we use books in postmodern reality. I found Christians to be bizarre. What if you had Rosaria as your neighbor? Or you taught with her at her school, or you ran into her regularly in the same community event? Mightn't you be thinking she's on that list of people who had never come to know Jesus? Might you be intimidated, perhaps, to even have a conversation To think, I could never engage with someone like this. There's no way. She'd never even give me the time of day. Sadly, most of Rosaria's interactions with Christians were hate mail. Really nasty things that professing Christians would write about her because of her stance on homosexuality, which of course is sinful and wrong. But the things they said about her were just nasty. And she was used to getting nasty letters. And one day this letter opened up on her desk and she was reading it and she thought it would be another nasty letter. It was a letter from Ken Smith a local Presbyterian pastor, and the tone was so different It struck her he was very gracious and not condemning. And he said, you know, I love literature like you do, and I know that if you love literature that you should, I'm just curious about how do you think about introducing your, your university students to what's known to be great literature, the Bible? What does that look like for you? Do you have a, an avenue or a venue to teach them the great literature that the Bible is? you know, I'd love to have a conversation with you. And at the end of his letter, he said, I'd like to invite you to my home with my wife, Floy. And uh, would you please come and just have dinner with us? I'd love to have a conversation. At first, she tore up the letter and threw it away. But then later, it just it nagged her because it was so different. She hadn't heard a, 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 an address from Christians like that before. And so she picked the letter out of the trash and she called him up because this number was in there and said, yes, I'd like to come to dinner. And she came and had a great time with Ken and Floy. They talked about their shared love for literature. They asked her a lot about her life. They were very gracious and kind, and she actually had a good time. It was her first real interaction with Christians. And they invited her a few weeks later, and she came again. And they would regularly invite her to their home to talk about literature, and to talk about the Bible as great literature, and why they believe the Bible was great literature, and hey, if you if you love literature, have you read this story in the Bible, or have you seen this this literary technique in this book of the Bible, and And she began to read the Bible for herself for the first time, really. And then slowly, Ken and Floyd, they would invite other people to their dinner parties. They would introduce Rosaria to other Christians. And over the course of quite a number of years, she began to open her heart to realize that not all Christians are evil. (laughs) They're not all crazy. Some of them are kind of normal and love the same things I love, but they have great respect for Jesus. And as she began to read the Bible, God began to speak to her. And as she met other Christians, and eventually... At the age of 36, God broke through in her heart, and she repented of her sins and trusted Christ as Savior. And there was a radical transformation in this life. She began to follow Christ at great cost because she was a leader in the homosexual community, and she obviously had to step down from that. And many of her dear, dear friends who, she said, loved her so well, all of a sudden hated her and didn't want anything to do with her and felt that she had betrayed them. And she's become one of the more winsome and thoughtful Speakers and writers about how Christians can engage non-Christians, and especially those in the homosexual community. I commend her autobiography to you, The Secret Thoughts of an Unlikely Convert, which talks about that. You may not agree with everything in there, but it's good. She's written a book on evangelism called The Gospel Comes with a House Key, and she just talks about how hospitality and friendship is so vital in becoming friends of sinners and inviting people to Jesus. Friends, for those of you who believe the gospel... Today, God is calling us as a church community to befriend those who do not know the gospel. We have the one thing that they most desperately need to deal with their greatest problem, which is their alienation and reconcil- or their alienation to a holy God. They need to be reconciled to him. We know Jesus. We can introduce them to Jesus, the one who alone has the authority to forgive their sins, the one who is the friend of sinners, the one who wants them to know his grace and mercy towards them. So, friends, in the power of God's Holy Spirit, may we develop as members and as a church a reputation as the friend of sinners like our Savior. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we're so grateful for your word. Your word is a gift to us. We thank you for it. We delight in how you rebuke and comfort us all at the same time in this. We're so thankful for the portrait of Jesus that we've seen in Matthew 9, 1 to 13, because those of us who are already Christians, we know ourselves to be sinners, Most of us would agree, knowing the wickedness of our own heart, that we'd probably feel like we're the chief of sinners. And so we take great comfort in knowing that Jesus has the authority to forgive our sins, that he came for people like us, that he delights to be our friend and to heal us of our sin, to forgive us and to slowly begin to transform us. Father, I pray that we would be a people, that this would be a church community that really deep down believes the gospel of grace and delights in Jesus and all that we have in him and our union with him. And Father, would you give us a burning passion, an intense, intentional desire to make Christ known to our non-believing community here in Prosper. The people we go to school with, the people we work with, the people in our neighborhood, maybe even people in our family who do not know Jesus. Lord, forgive us for the times in which we Jump from Christian relationship to Christian relationship and have no meaningful relationships with non-Christians. Help us to be intentional as we move forward. Help us to love sinners in intentional friendship and use us as an instrument of your grace to introduce them to Jesus that they too might believe and be saved and brought into your kingdom and have hope and join us in glad-hearted worship each Lord's Day here at Zion. Father, would you grow this church by bringing unchurched people in, Would you glorify your name and bless this congregation as you call sinners to yourself. We thank you that you've called us, and we worship and delight in you as the friend of sinners, praying in Jesus' name. Amen.